Welcome back to Leads to Scale, a podcast from Social Media Week. I am your host, Toby Daniels. On this week's episode, we have Josh Neckes, co-founder and president of Simon Data, the first and only enterprise customer data platform with a fully integrated marketing cloud. Josh and his co-founders built Simon Data with the passion of blending data and marketing. During our conversation, we talked about the service that they're providing, how it's different from the old ways of marketing, and how his company is able to help marketers eliminate all of the technological barriers that have long been in the way of their creative ideas. He also shared his take on one of their customers, WeWork, and how they are using data to grow their business. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome back to Leads to Scale. On the podcast this week, we have Josh Neckes, co-founder and president of Simon Data. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for joining. Thank you, Toby. All right, let's get straight into it. Tell us about Simon Data. <sighs> My favorite topic. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, look, I think the best way to understand our business is that we are essentially part of the vanguard for the next generation of marketing tech. Um, and so specifically the role that we play is uh, this sort of next generation of personalization engine. The way that we do that is buying a, by having a wholly unique path to integrating data, pulling data from all over your business and letting you do anything with it. So orchestrating um, the next generation of customer experiences. Um, and we do it with what I think are some of the most inter interesting companies out there. So WeWork, Airbnb, a lot of these really progressive technology companies that have a new way of thinking about um, what it means to deliver a customer experience. All right, we're, we're gonna like unpack everything that you just covered, I think over the course of this conversation, but let's start with, uh, it's, a, it's a relatively young company. I mean, what, three or four years old. Uh, talk, talk about how you actually founded the company in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to understand it is like most of the best companies I know it came from um, experiencing profound personal pain. <laughs> so, uh, and specifically, you know, my two co-founders and I both had felt the challenge of delivering a great experience to customers. Um, all of us know what a great customer experience feels like. Um, you know, it's, it's that really personal um, touch that a company gives you that feels relevant and timely. And all the words that we've been using for 20 years in marketing um, you know, about that ideal customer experience. And all of us then struggle to deliver it for a thousand reasons. Um, the most frustrating reason, though, is typically that it's just hard to do from a technological point of view. Sure, it's, it's bad enough that we actually have to think about all the different ways that we should be delivering a personalized experience to our customers um, you know, from a marketing perspective, like what's the right message? What does my brand stand for? What's the right channel to reach somebody in? Um, it's a lot more painful when you also pair that with just technological limitations that prevent you from doing it. So my two co-founders ran data and data engineering at Etsy. I did management consulting and ran marketing teams for Fortune 500 brands and really progressive startups. Um, you know, and all of us had seen that just the current state of technology prohibited um, savvy marketers and data folks alike from delivering that personalized experience, even when they'd done the hard part of having the strategy and the process and the vision um, of what that might look like. And so. Um, there have been some meaningful advances in 
data infrastructure and um, how how systems are built over the last five to ten years to skip over a lot of uh, technical details. Um, and so we looked at the landscape. We looked at what was possible. We looked at what companies like Google and um, Amazon are able to do from a personalization and storytelling perspective. Um, and then we looked at the tech that might solve that problem and started building. Um, and we built some sort of an MVP. Um, on the back of some initial funding that had been raised for another business concept. Um, we got a lot of really fast traction with friends companies that were like, wow, this is totally an issue. I want to deliver amazing personalized experiences in every channel and I can't do that. Um, and then they started paying us and we were able to get them to pay us more. And then we went out to some investors and had some really casual conversations and they gave us a bunch of money. Um, and then we focused on growing it. Um, and, you know, I can tell more of that story, but it's been, you know, a good three years from there. So I, I want to go back to just just the founding story just for a second because um, obviously there are there are three co-founders. Um, e each of you has like a, a different skill set, brings something different to the table. How did you know that you had the right chemistry that was going to kind of form the sort of the nucleus of of what Simon Data could eventually become? Yeah, I mean, I think they were probably most skeptical of me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I yeah. mean, for obvious reasons. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, so I mean, I'll just leave it there. Uh, no, I think so. They had both um, started and sold a company previously to Etsy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so my co-founder, Jason, um, you know, uh, had been CEO of a business called Adtuitive, and him and Matt had worked on that together. Uh, Matt is our CTO. Um, and, you know, I think for them, uh, when I met them, you know, two things really stood out to me. The first is, wow, these are two of the most technically talented folks. You know, Jason has a PhD in machine learning. Matt is basically the best data engineer I've ever encountered. Um, you know, and they had a really tight relationship that stretched back 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, and they just worked together consistently for 12 years. And when you see something like that, as a non-technical founder looking for a potential opportunity to start a business, that's like, you know, sticking a pickaxe in the ground and having oil just start shooting out everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like it was the most, it was the best gift I'd ever been given as a mm -hmm. business person to meet two people like this. And on top of that, they were both humble. They had a ton of integrity. Um, and all of those things early on were huge signals to me that these were people worth taking seriously. Meeting their families, getting to know them personally actually was a huge part of it. Because at the end of the day, when I see businesses struggle as they're scaling, it's because there's, tr there's, there's drama. Mm -hmm. You know, there's businesses are hard enough if it if you don't have a great relationship with that team and you don't trust them and there's not integrity there um, and shared intentionality, you're going to fail. Um, so, you know, from there, you know, then it was a question for me of, you know, I'd sort of been sniffing around a lot of areas um, in terms of the intersection of data and personas and marketing and influencers. And, you know, I, I think we, we had a shared hypothesis about. Um, you know where the space was going and sort of sort of started building together and I think they looked at me and they were like hey this guy's kind of unusual he's good at selling but he's also a marketer and he you know seems to have like a some you know some of his own integrity and has decent connections and has some experience with startups and has experiences with big companies and, and presumably like yeah. and also had some kind of like depth of understanding on the technical side yeah, as well you exactly. can at least you can at least like be dangerous in terms of like you know talking about and waxing lyrical on on things relating to technology yeah which i would argue actually as a founding team is our biggest weakness right, right. which is that all of us like talking about the details right. um so i've had to extricate myself from that and the way that i describe us as founders is we're like three overlapping circles in the sense that matt is by far the most technical then there's jason who's like technical
technical and product, and then there's me that's like business and product. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's sort of this there's this linear relationship between you know all business on one hand and all technical on the other, and we we really are like perfectly complementary, which I think is very unusual. Right. So you mentioned um, you're part of the new vanguard or, or part of a new generation, I suppose. Um, talk about the old generation. Talk about what you're you're essentially out there trying to fix, and and what is broken in regards to kind of like the data marketing landscape. Yeah, I mean, there's so many there's so many pathways into answering that question. I think, without boring, you know, ninety nine percent of the people who are listening to this podcast, um, analogy is probably the best pathway to understanding. So, you know, essentially. The, the sort of first generation of marketing personalization engines were built with like a very specific problem in mind, which is let's just send a ton of emails. Let's just show people a ton of the same ads. Um, personalization is going to happen, um, you know, in an ad hoc basis. But really, like that's technical. That's like a technical problem. We don't really need to solve it. And what's happened is there's just been... Uh, an expansion in the number of channels that people are using to communicate to their customers. And there's also now an expectation that companies will maintain an ongoing dialogue with you that's responsive to the things that you do. Um, and these systems were just never architected to do that. They were never architected to take in a real-time event um, and join it with a piece of data you know, on that customer to say, Toby, you know, you abandoned your cart, but you're a high lifetime value customer, so we're not going to send you that abandoned cart email. We're instead going to send you this like piece of direct mail that tells a story about your customer journey with us. Like that's not something that these solutions were ever built to do. Um, you know, they were never built to do geofencing. So, hey, Toby, you know, you're near the airport. You know, this is something you'll get from Uber. Um, you know, how about you know pre-booking your trip back from the airport when you land? You know, in in the next week and will give you a discount. That's not something that like Salesforce Marketing Cloud was ever built to do. Um, and so when people try to make it do that, uh, it sucks really hard. Um, and so that's, we can retrofit it to make it more effective. Um, and then we also sort of have our own end-to-end -end solutions and that's the displacement. So are we are we talking about, and, and forgive my ignorance, but are we talking about like um, CDPs versus DMPs? So we're talking about, yeah, so the category that people put us in um, typically is a customer data platform, um, which is sort of this new thing that sits between your data infrastructure, like where you store all your customer data, mm -hmm. um, and your marketing channels, which might be email or push or SMS or ad channels, um, or your DMP, which is essentially just a tool for targeting people with advertising. And essentially what the CDP is supposed to do, and it's a very troubled category, which we can get into in a second if you're interested in that, is pull in all my customer data and build a unified customer view. So everything I know about Toby, mm -hmm. um, all the things you bought, all the things you did on my website, everything you've done on my app, all the interactions you've had with my uh, customer experience team, all the offline transactions you've had, any third-party data I have on you, it's all in one place. And from that place, I can send data anywhere to orchestrate campaigns that touch you in a way that feels good. Um, that is relevant and timely and personalized using the infrastructure that you already have. Um, so that's where we sit, um, if that answers your question. No, it definitely does. And, you know, I, I, I imagine as teams um, transition from the old into the new and as they start to kind of adapt to the new sort of data marketing landscape, um, the sort of internal structures uh, have to be entirely sort of reorganized around different functions and different expertise and skill sets. 
Um, and part of the uh, one of the things that um, one of the insights, I suppose, or, or something that you talked a lot about early on in Simon Data's existence was this idea of, of of wanting to sort of like serve as or function as the kind of the chief um, data science kind of officer from you know within the organization because it's a it's a it's a, a function or it's a level of expertise that like a lot of these marketing organizations really struggle to 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 you know bring on so. T talk about that, but also don't talk about like how how do the how do the sort of these marketing teams look today as part of the like the new generation? Well, it's funny. I mean, you know, our positioning has evolved as the market has evolved around us, and as understanding has changed. I mean, I think what's really cool um, is that new technology always implies a new way of working, almost always. Anyway, I'll say I'll caveat that. But um, our platform does. You know, it is it is a space fundamentally for collaboration between data teams and marketing teams. Um, and one of the things that that you know, a couple of my um, a couple of my strategic folks and I have been talking a lot about is this thing called the death of marketing, um, which is to say, you know, marketing as a concept is actually not something that people want, um, and in, in decreasingly so. Um, people don't want you to sell them something. They want to have experiences in their lives that are connected to things that are interesting to them. And, and the brands that are leading the way in terms of building relationships with their customers have just put down the project of trying to convince you of anything. Um, and instead what they've done is they've said, I'm going to deliver coherent, connected experiences for you that are relevant to you. Um, and we're gonna tell you what we're about um, because it might be interesting as you look to evolve and build your own identity as a person, whether that's in fashion, whether that's in um, you know e-commerce generally, whether that's in you know transportation apps or hospitality or whatever, you know, people are looking to affirm their identity by the choices that they make, um, by the brands that they associate with, and that's cool, right? Like that's what fashion is, that's what style is, that's what experience is, um, you know. And the brands that have the brands that have embraced that are the brands that are also embracing a new way of working, which is to say, I don't have a marketing team over here that's just like doing its marketing thing and is like trying to convince people of shit and then I've got like my product team over here that's like building the actual product and experiences that my brand delivers in my own spaces and then I've got my technical team over here that's like looking at how it's all working and then like maybe feeding insights back instead you have these unified teams they're growth teams they're experience teams they are not a CRM team or a marketing team this is a team that's fundamentally constructed to engage with the customer in a new way um, and it's awesome it's like totally different and it requires a totally different type of technology to power um, and that's what we do so you know the sort of the the way that I describe um, you know what Simon is now to a marketing team is often much more disruptive to their way of thinking but I have more comfort in that because we have proof that this is the way that things are going so I can say look I know you thought you were trying to buy a new email service provider or you thought you wanted you know just like a, another widget to tack on to your horribly bloated marketing tech stack but the problem that you're solving is actually you need a new way of working and you need a tool that can do that with you and that's what we do and we help you get there so talk a little bit more about that because I know that in the past, in terms of how you position Simon Data, it's you, you've sort of described it as like an intelligence led. It sits on top of your existing kind of like data marketing sort of sources. Um, how is the the kind of positioning evolved and 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 you know get get super granular in terms of like how how you talk about the Simon Data product? 
I mean, I think when you start a company, you like have a thing and a hypothesis and you just have no idea what anyone else thinks about it is sort of the starting point. And you're so in the weeds, you know, you're like, yeah, like this thing, it like pulls data together and it like sends it places and like that feels important, you know, but you're, it, it's so hard to step back and like understand the broader context, even for somebody like me, where that's like my favorite thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, you, I would not have believed how hard it was if you had told me, um, I had to experience it myself. It's just insane. Um, so, you know, the evolution has been one of trying to reconnect with what got us started and interested in the first place and then also realizing this shift that's happening in parallel um it's sort of like you, you know it's sort of like warfare changes as weapons change you uh -huh. know so it's like somebody invents a machine gun and the first time it's used in battle people like charge horses into it and it's like a total nightmare um you know and then all of a sudden we have like trench warfare happening right mm -hmm. and or and then we have like world war ii it's like so similarly in in not to use like a military analogy here um it's too late you it's, just did. i did uh but it's uh, so to explicitly use a military analogy here um you know there's there's this way in which you know, we built a new weapon for for the building and deployment of better experiences and that weapon has enabled new ways of deploying experiences for people and teams are in parallel responding to changing customer expectations around the experiences that they will get and so our positioning now when i go to talk to people starts there um, because I now have a better understanding of it having lived it and watched brands do it I've been working with these really savvy super interesting brands now for you know three years um, I've watched bark bark box become bark you know start you know business that was like a, a cool subscription box business to like a business that's gonna IPO and be worth a ton of money I've watched and we work, you know, double itself over the course of our engagement. You know, I've and and now it's going to, you know, raise potentially, you know, like tens of billions of dollars, which is like totally mind blowing. Um, you know, and and again, Casper and sort of the list goes on of companies that I've watched develop this competency. So now when I go talk to somebody about what we're doing. Um, it's really easy because what's happening is really obvious, so, and it wasn't so obvious at the beginning. Which is to say, now I say, marketing is changing. Um, and it may be dying. You can agree with me or disagree with me on that, but you can definitely agree with me that what the consumer that you're talking to wants is one conversation with you that feels authentic. That is an experience that allows them in a transparent way to connect with your brand, um, you know, and to understand your story in relation to their own. And that has to be uniform. And the problem is the closer that you get to doing that well, but still failing, the worse it is. Mm -hmm. There's this uncanny valley of personalization where like people are willing to tolerate totally terrible personalization because they're like, well, this is just not even close to personalized. But if I get really close, if I send you like, you know, the perfect um, email that feels totally customized to you and then you come to my website and it feels just like a thing that doesn't know anything about you, that's really off-putting. Right. And so, you know, we finally crossed that chasm um, you know, and again, that's the story. It's like, don't you want to cross that chasm with me? Right. Don't you want to be a look at what Google is doing, right? Look at look at the experience that Apple delivers to you on your iPhone. How far away is that from what you deliver? Mm. Well, that is where the bar is. Because mm -hmm. every customer that you have has an Android phone or an iPhone, so they are getting that push notification that Google's sending. You know, after your night out with your friends, that says, "Hey, Toby." Do you want to share these photos with the friends that you were with? Mm. 
And it's like, yes, I do want to do that. And even if I don't, that feels useful to me. Um, juxtaposed with like you left this item in your cart, you know, and it's like that could not be further away. It feels wonderfully idealistic. I mean, the, the I mean, both the sort of the the picture you paint in terms of the customer experience, as well as the idea that like marketing might be in decline or is dying. The, the truth of the matter is that. It, it 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 the shitty advertising still to a certain extent works um probably not the majority of the time um and 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 you can equally say that like shitty approaches to marketing also work um that's why marketers are, are encouraged to continue to do things in the way that they do and i'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing but you are talking about something that feels very idealistic so, so to go back to what you were talking about, though, uh, a minute ago, and, and I was going to ask a different question, but I actually want to ask a question that's much more centered around the customer experience. Like I was going to ask you about like one of, you know, give me an example of one of your customers that you worked with where you've sort of like impacted them in a really significant way that's ultimately benefited the customer experience. But I actually want to just so I want to know what have you describe um, the customer experience or the customer journey that has been impacted by changes that a client of yours has made as a result of what you're talking about here. Does that yeah. make sense? Well, yeah, and, uh, but I want to go but back in, to the in, point in that... Really, and I yeah. ask that question because I, I want to get granular. I love being granular, uh, yeah. and I want you to, to, to be sort of very specific without necessarily having to talk about, like, the the, the Simon Day, a client. Yeah, well, I, but I want to... I mean, I think I can also answer it I'm, uh, through the lens of what you're saying, which is that it's idealistic. Well, of course it is. Mm. Of course it is. Now, the question is, like, are you on the path or not? Okay, like I don't need you to believe that marketing is dying tomorrow. Um, I just need you to understand what's changing. So, you know, that's the number one piece. That's and that's the best question you can ask. So when I get to know somebody and they're like, "Hey, uh, what does Simon do and what does it enable?" and I tell the story that I just told you, and they the first thing they always say to me is, "Well, we're so far away from that." Well, it's like, great. Do you have a plan to get there? Well, no, we don't. Well, that's going to be a problem. Well, this is your plan. Now, is it going to take you a year or two years or five years? I don't know. Um, but don't you want to be with a partner who's going to get you there? Don't you want to invest in that process? Well, let's talk about what that looks like. So when I start with most companies, um, you know, they we really try to select for teams that are smart. We try to select for um, uh, spaces and companies that... Um, are either very interesting for us and or where we have deep experience because I think there's value in that. Um, you know, and, and to, to sort of get specific, um, you know, like starting, you know, our, our engagement with the folks that we work, you know, for them, you know, they are one of these progressive hyper growth technology companies that has incredible resources, has exploded in terms of growth, you know, and is, is thinking about, I mean, think about the problem of that business, right? WeWork has more data to play with than almost any other business because you're in their product. You are literally inside of their product. You are touring it. You are using it. You are checking into conference rooms. You're swiping. You're using the services store. You're in the honesty market. Like you are, you are living in their product. Your team is in their product. They have data collection mechanisms that let them understand how often people are moving between desks. I mean, like the data set is absurd. And then they have everything you're doing on online, and they have everything that you're doing, um, you know, and sort of an engagement with their team. Like you talk to them, they capture structured data through their conversations with you. So um, they looked at that data set and were sort of like, where do we start? 
right? Like we have, we can do so much to deliver better products, to be more timely, to support the needs of the companies that we're working with. And we met them at that moment where they had like done some testing, but they were basically like, we want to put a structured initiative around that. And they had, you know, the makings of this cross-functional team that I described that's marketing plus growth, you know, that's really thinking holistically about beginning to end, what is the journey that a company takes with us from that first hot desk that they get to a global access pass for their head of sales to their first satellite office to some swing space in a different market all the way down to um, you know, something like a headquarters. Like I actually want to re-headquarter my company here. You know, I think if you think about that journey from swing space to having my headquarters with you, um, so much of so much of telling the story and helping the customer along requires delivering the right message at the right time, making sure that people feel like their needs and experiences with WeWork are, um, you know, tied together. That when I express a need or when I take an action or when I run out of conference room credits um, that my account manager happens to reach out to me that day with new options and new ways of expanding my space and relationship. That when I look at some products on the website um, that are new in terms of um, moving my company to a headquarters or um, you know, getting global access passes for my traveling sales team, that it just so happens that the sales rep reaches out with real context around how I use my space today and why this might be helpful. Um, so then it's not a sale, then it's a, it's a consultation. It's a response to a need that's being expressed. Um, and that sort of dynamic is how we work with them. Um, and we are there for the strategy and we're there for the technology deployment, which enables this. And again, I can get even more granular in terms of what, you know, what campaigns they look to run and how they're thinking about this. But the promise that they're looking to fulfill through the work is very specific, which is Adam, their CEO, has a vision, which is, you know, we work is the future of work. It's changing the way that people work. And, and in fulfilling that promise, it must be personal. It must be about more than just a transactional relationship. And the pathway to doing that is to have a central connected space where I can know things about you and take action off of them um, in a way that feels good and, and timely and organic. And it is instantiating that whole apparatus that has characterized our work with them to date. And are they Google yet? No. Are they Amazon yet? No. But are they are they uniquely WeWork and are they moving on that pathway at a time frame that feels good to them and their you know and their investors? Yes. So that's really interesting because I think that like you're talking about a, a, a customer that is fairly advanced, at least in terms of like um, the 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 amount of data that they are collecting prior to having that like first conversation with you. Talk talk about a customer that is not as advanced um, is much further back in the sort of process of thinking about what data to collect, what metrics matter. Because I think one of the big challenges, we, we talk a lot about um, B2B marketing in, on, on this podcast and um, in the B2B marketing space, it seems that um, uh, a lot of people are generally focusing on the wrong metrics or don't know what metrics to focus on, um, which represents like a fairly big challenge. So what is your advice in that regard, particularly when you think about working with a customer that isn't as advanced as we work? You know, what data should you be collecting? What data really matters? What, what metrics really matter? Um, and, and at the same time, what metrics don't matter? What should you, to a certain extent, be deprioritizing or even ignoring? 
Well, I want to I want to first caveat what you said because when we met them, we met WeWork. They weren't advanced um, because you have to think about how that business started. It's co-working space, which is one to one. That's consumer marketing. So they weren't doing anything account based at all, and they're in this moment of transition now. Where I think if you ask most people, like, what is WeWork about, and you know, like, if you're the head of real estate at UBS. Um, do you think that WeWork can power your headquarters? Like, no. Do you think that WeWork has space options for your startup that has 500 people? No. Well, that's their primary business line now by revenue, right? And that's taken place over the last nine months. So, you know, they have this massive marketing challenge, which is we have to learn how to do account-based marketing and then do it at a level that is commensurate with the promise that we make to our clients about personalization. I would actually argue they've come further than almost anyone else we've worked with in such a short time frame, and it's you know very much a testament to their leadership. Um, to sort of to give you another example, um, you know, we work with this brand uh, that I have a lot of love for in New Jersey called Nuts.com, um, and these guys are great. Uh, this business is probably one of the most interesting businesses that I've encountered in that they are like an 80-year-old business, probably even older. They started as a storefront selling nuts in New Jersey. And this guy, Jeff, who's their CEO, had the foresight about 20 years ago to start a website, nuts.com. You know, And it was originally nutsonline.com, I think, and he bought the domain later. But, I mean, this business... It, it just exploded like they they somehow they have amazing product and he had a huge vision for just changing the distribution model um, have gone from you know wherever they were to a business that again I can't disclose their revenue numbers but is massive by any standard um, and when we met them you know Jeff had decided to to, to begin this new process um, of changing the business again and, and becoming more customer driven and more even more digital and doubling down and brought in this guy Matt Butline who is their chief vision officer and is sort of responsible for envisioning this new relationship. Now the business is really interesting because it has a B2C component but the majority of what they do is B2B which is to say they sell um, you know large volumes of hard to find nuts and flour and other products to restaurants and or airlines um, you know, they do a lot of white label type stuff. So a lot of their revenue comes from like airlines that are, they're literally packing the nuts that they give you, right? Um, and so they have an amazingly complex business in the sense that they have one storefront for B2B and B2C use cases. They have a sales team, they have an account-based marketing model, and they have a more classic B2C model. Um, you know, and so when we started with them, this is a business that is at once incredibly savvy, okay? It's unlike many of these technology businesses. Uh, it's been in business for 80 years, okay? It has um, a tremendous understanding of aspects of its customer base, and it didn't have a data warehouse properly. It had like a SQL box that it was using, was sort of thinking about how to evolve that. Um, so, you know, and for those of you who aren't data savvy, that just is sort of like having a car that doesn't have a combustion engine, right? Like right. it's just, it's, it's, that's like sort of the core centerpiece of a, of a more mature data infrastructure. And so in working with them, we sort of started um, by just saying like, okay, where do you want to be? 
right? Like, wh what is that dream state for you? You know, and it and it sort of turns on a couple of different dimensions. It's like a fully segmented, you know, incredibly personalized customer experience that bifurcates by business and consumer. Um, we want to drive all the classic metrics. Okay, this means time to first purchase, time to second purchase, average order value, um, you know, discount uh, thresholding. I want to reduce the percentage of people that use discounts and drive margin. I want to. I want to be become more profitable as a business. I want to reduce fulfillment costs. I mean, these guys were savvy. Like the list of asks they had for us were significant. And in parallel, we want to drive engagement. We want people to want to talk to us, to come back and engage in our content and understand the relationship of their needs, whether those are business or consumer, um, you know, and, and our ability to sort of help them meet those things. And so, you know, how far along are they? Um, well, I can tell you that the improvement has been dramatic from a bottom line perspective for them, which again is huge testament to Jeff and Matt um, and their team. Um, you know, and and they've resourced the team in the way that you would want, which is to say they built a team of folks who are very growth minded, who are interdisciplinary, who both value data and creative, who are storytellers and um, are quantitative in their orientation, and so they're able to move effortlessly between questions about the trends that are showing up in the data and the business goals, um, you know, and and the storytelling that is going to connect a customer to their next experience and their next product and their next purchase. Um, so anyway, that's like, they're an example, I think, of a brand that's literally going from, you know, a storefront business to a born digital type orientation in a year or two, which again is, is unusual, but speaks to the question that you had. This week's Lead to Scale podcast is brought to you by our very own Social Media Week New York 2019. I'm incredibly excited to announce that the 11th edition of SMWNYC will take place between April 30th and May 2nd at the Sheraton Times Square Hotel in New York City. I'm super excited to share with you our 2019 theme, Stories with Great Influence Comes Great Responsibility which will explore how the content we create and consumes shapes who we are and what we become. Visit socialmediaweek.org forward slash New York and secure your pass today. And if you use the code leads number two scale, you will receive an additional 10% off your pass. Now let's get back to the show. You touched on uh, account-based models and account-based marketing. This has come up a ton on this particular podcast. Whenever I ask the question, how do you define or describe it, I always seem to get like different answers, but it seems to be a pretty hot topic at the moment. So in the context of what we were just talking about, describe what you believe is account-based marketing. Well, it's funny. I just don't see it as at all subjective. So I'd love to hear some of the other definitions after I give mine. Um, I mean, so... In marketing, you have um, a classic e-commerce model is one-to-one. -one. So, Toby, um, you are a customer of mine. I have facts about you. And when I market to you, all I have to think about is the facts that I have as they pertain to you. There is a one-to-one -one relationship um, you know, of the data points that I have on you and your customer record, period. Um, Account-based marketing is a world in which Toby is now actually part of another organization and that organization itself has attributes. So you might be, Toby now is you know, head of Crowdcentric. Um, and Crowdcentric has a number of employees who have roles and facts and so on. Um, and each of those employees has their own attributes. And so now we have this 
many-to-many -many relationship where we have many attributes and many different data points across this account. Um, and that account could ladder up. Like, what if Crowdcentric was purchased by, you know, uh, like Viacom? Mm -hmm. Well, now Viacom has its own nested corporate structure and then there are roles and people there that have their own attributes and then they have other companies that they own that have their own roles and so what happens is you have this incredibly complex data model on the account side and then you have facts and goals and things that you're trying to drive um on the on the on the outcome side so when i think then in an account-based world about how to market to you well now it you know, in a, in, a, in a consumer world, I react to your actions only. Mm -hmm. um, I react to the signals that you give me. But in a world where I'm account-based marketing to crowd-centric, well, if one of your employees takes an action, should that result in marketing changing to you? And the answer is, of course. Right, so if Tyler, um, a, uh, one of my favorite crowd-centric employees, you know, signs some massive contract with WeWork, um, you should receive different marketing as the CEO of crowd-centric. Um, and if you don't, that's super weird, right? Like, because <laughs> presumably you were involved in that interaction. So account-based marketing is is literally just normal marketing applied to a world in which there's an interrelationship between um, the folks on the account. Um, and uh, what happens to them and what they receive in relation to their role and the, the businesses, the account ongoing relationship with the company that is doing the marketing. So I, I want to switch to talking about scaling Simon data. So this is a, a sort of a, a shift from talking about like how you serve and support your customers mm -hmm. to talking about how you've actually scaled the business. But actually the account-based sort of marketing um, example you just provided is a, is, a, is a great segue because I'd love to hear about how you think about that in the context of scaling your business. I mean, the short answer is like, we don't do a great job doing account-based marketing because it's hard and it takes a lot of people. And and, and at our stage, we're about 60 people. Um, you know, we have basic account-based rules and segmentation. And so if we're going to try to market to a company, let's say I want to get Uber to start using our software, um, you know, I'll map the organization, I'll create rules and roles, and then what those folks receive or see from us will change based on their role. If we create an opportunity with a marketing director at Uber, like the CMO will get suppressed from campaigns. Um, if we have a conversation with somebody at a conference and they download a white paper that we have on site, um, that's going to change the nurture stream or sort of some sort of other element that they might get. And that's like, I call that basic account-based marketing. Frankly, compared to many companies, I would say that now that I'm describing it to you, it's probably more advanced. Um, but it's um, you know it's just about laying an effective foundation. And I and I sort of see account-based marketing as something that's been happening for a long time. Like I actually don't. I think you know companies like Marketo and HubSpot have been enabling this sort of account-based thing for like a long time. Um, so I'm I'm actually always confused when people bring it up like it's a new thing um, because I actually think it's lagging behind in some respects consumer marketing um, but then I also think it's way ahead in other respects um, but anyway no I think that's fair I mean it's come up a lot because it it, it, it it's um, it's it's very sort of industry buzzwordy as well as being something very substantive so uh, you know those two things oftentimes oftentimes kind of like conflict with each other but the truth is when done well it's hugely effective but i think you just made one of the most important points which is it's really hard yeah i mean and i think <laughs> i guess it's i'm just i guess i'm i was very surprised to see it become a buzzword again because you know i was like uh 
remember when we started with WeWork and like it was everybody was like account based, account based. We have to become account based, and it's like yeah, totally. <laughs> like <laughs> yes, you know, and and I and it's because and the reason that language was being used is because all the vendors that were selling to them were sort of using that language, um, you know, and I think and I think they were savvy enough to be like yeah, this is like marketing same as it ever was on the business side, um, you know, and I think that they're I to your point like. I think that there is a moment now where people are using account base to actually sort of push this more omni-channel story, where it's like traditional account-based marketing was email and on-site, and now people are wanting to deliver that experience across, you know, the sort of plenary of additional channels that have become standard spaces for engagement. And so in that sense, it's not really account-based marketing that should be the focus. It's um, more holistic channel-based marketing that's actually being implied through the lens of that account-based element. So let's go back to the early days of scaling Simon Data. You sort of talked about the first few clients that you brought on board and how you persuaded them to even sit down and have a conversation on board, try the product when the product was still in a fairly sort of rudimentary state. And then how do you... Uh, move through a process of then onboarding new clients and, and get to the point where you know WeWork is one of your 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 biggest customers. I mean that we could do a whole podcast on this because it's like so interesting. Um, it's there's no we have time. <laughs> there's no way to properly share or convey how hard early startup sales. Um, and not just I mean you are going even if you're you have the best reputation you're the smartest guys um, or gals you know you are you're the you're going out to these businesses um, and you're basically saying I got this thing and no one's using it who's using it no one okay no one has ever used this thing before (laughs) like use it and pay me for it you know, and, and yeah, like you, you, you sort of start with customers that are paying you a pittance and but that actually doesn't matter. The biggest mistake startup founders make is not charging enough in those early days because actually the money is not the hard part. The hard part is the trust, the sense that like in our case, I'm going to give you all my data on all my customers and all my revenue and everything that they've ever done and trust that you're going to use it to market to people and not disappear or do something highly illegal with it or it's just not going to break and create a horrible experience and like th- that the first 20 times you do that um it is like going into a battlefield and just like cutting off like a thousand heads and at the end of it you're like bloody and tired and you're like holding a sack of cash and like that is how it feels like right. it just does not stop feeling that way um until you, it does right until there's this moment that happens, I'm sure every startup founder who's like had a SaaS type product can relate to this intimately. You get that first phone call that's like, or you have that first conversation that's like, oh yeah, I've heard of you guys. Yeah, my friend says that it's really good. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you have this like emotional response, like even telling you this, I mean, re-experiencing that first time where it was just like, oh God, like somebody knows who we are. Somebody's heard of, oh yeah, I've heard good things about you guys. What, you heard about us? How? You were at the bar, somebody's talking about Simon data? And now it's like, 
we have inbound leads. We have people coming around and saying, you know, hey, my, you know, I used to use you guys at this company and it was great. Like, I want to use you over here. And it just changes everything. Now, what happens that I think is less documented is if you're if you're smart, you should always be closing deals that feel like those first deals that you closed, which is to say they should always feel like you're you're stretching yourself, you're stretching your you're stretching your ability to have the conversation in a way that feels good. Um, and so what that means might be you know more aspirational client types, bigger contract values. Um, but if you're not you know, when we closed, um, I remember like when we started our relationship with um, Casper or Bobble Bar, those were like massive, you know, I mean, and, and, and but Casper, I would argue now because of how much they've grown still, you know, and, and you know, I mean, Bobble Bar is doing well too. It, but both of them at the time were like, you know, huge transformational business events. Um, you know, and now we sign contracts that are bigger than that. And I don't even talk to the person and I don't know them and like, and they come in and I'm excited, but I don't, I've never heard of like, like somebody else handled that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm focused now on like building a relationship with, you know, the fortune 50 and, you know, companies that are really, really challenging to work into because we're now at that stage. Um, and that's good. That means that our product is doing its job. All right. Let's, um, jump out of the sort of CDP Simon data world for a second. Uh, Josh, you're a pretty smart guy. Uh, I always enjoy the conversations that we have. And I love to talk about sort of broader things that are happening in your world in particular, in regards to your own personal relationship to technology. And, and I guess this question is about sort of, you know, your thoughts about the future and some of the kind of um, um, impending I industry trends that you think will be important to our our industry, important to your business, but things that you're just like you're personally excited about as well. Mm. I mean, what am I excited about? I think I'm. So you know, I think generally speaking, I'm excited for technology to get out of the way um, because I think that if you were to ask most marketing teams why it's hard or why they're not able to do whatever it is that they want to do, they will still say technology is a major impediment for me getting done what I want to get done. And there's the classic line, I think Steve Jobs parroted it, I think it was said by somebody else, um, technology done well disappears, right? You no longer experience it being there. It's just you have an idea and you do it and that's it. There's idea to action. There is no intermediary step. It is enabled. It's like putting down your foot on the gas car goes faster. That's it, right? So, you know, I am excited for, you know, our all technology that we use to, to, to approach that point, um, to approach the place of seamless and um, enabling so that marketers can actually realize that probably already today, their primary challenge is just having good ideas. Um, and it's not testing them and it's not um, enabling them, it's not enacting them, it's actually just privileging the process of iteration and ideation and creativity um, and having an original voice uh, versus setting up an abandoned cart campaign as like a win um, you know, for the business. So. I think that is something I'm really excited about. Um, and it sort of ties to the consumer world, which is um, I'm excited for life to generally be easier than it was. Um, and I caveat that by saying, 
you know, when I was born, life was already really easy compared to how it was 50 years ago, uh, or 50 years before that. Um, but I didn't get to realize any of that benefit. And the joy of getting older, and actually, I think, you know, you and I, as, as two people who are getting older, um, you know, not that we're old, uh, though I do. And not that we're the only people getting older. And exactly. It's too, well, you know, I only have proof personally. Inside uh, this room, we are the only two people getting older. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, without, without, you know, without specifying age or any of that, um, you know, I think I have now seen, I've lived long enough to see things get easier and to experience that. I think that's one of the great joys of living is that you can only appreciate technological advance that happens as you experience it. Um, so th I've been enjoying that. I've been enjoying, I love Uber. I love Uber. Like I love it. Like it's like a, like it's a, like it's a dear friend. Like it's every time I call an Uber and it picks me up at the airport at 1am. I'm so excited. Like I actually, I'm like, yes, this car, I don't have to tell this person where to go. I don't have to argue with them about the best way. I can see how they're going. I know how long it's going to take me to get there. Like I don't have to pay them. Like it's just going to happen. I mean, I have to pay them, but like that's, I mean, that is miraculous. And if you're eight years old right now, that's life. So anyway, life as an eight-year-old is pretty sweet. So, um, <laughs> but, so, but, 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 building off of that, though, what, what, are there any sort of areas of your life that are um, not served uh, in such a similar way um, as Uber has been able to? The the magic that Uber sort of um, presents in 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 your world and in most people's worlds is is really something uh, to 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 be marvelled at. But what's missing? Like, is there an aspect of your life that you're incredibly frustrated by or that you wish that there was an Uber-like solution for? And this should not actually, like, prompt, you yeah. know, all of the various different, like, Uber derivative ideas. But, I mean, let's focus just simply on the kind of the aspect of your life and, and where you'd love for there to be a better solution. Yeah, I... I think honestly... Um, and we were talking about this actually before the podcast uh, in ways... Um, I think the biggest the biggest challenge that I experience as a person is space. Not having emotional space for connection, for engagement, for authenticity, and just like the never-ending torrent of information and um, demand. And despite all of these wonderful Uber-like innovations, you know the you get home at the end of the day and it's like you're a husk of a person in many in many respects. You've been used up. Um, you know, and it's so hard to then look at the person you love or the people that you love and, and have space and time for them. And I think my really great hope for the next frontier of technology is to is to help with that, you know, to say, you know, yes, we've shown an ability as and maybe that's not technology's place. And that's like a much more philosophical conversation. But I do think that there are ways that we could build technology that better create space. Um, my friend Greg Hawkmith, who is one of Instagram's um, like primary product leads, had this funny idea for an app that only let you see one email at a time. Um, you know, and it was just like, that's how and it's like you can only see one email at a time. Um, and, and it came from sort of a similar mindset, which is we open our email in the morning and it's just like a list of shit that's like so long and overwhelming. And we like scroll through it to try to figure out which one's most important. And then we like figure out some sort of internal hierarchy and like label them. And it's like, 
and it's just so stressful. It, like, it's a like how many of you listening, the first thing you do is just like, boop, email, like when you wake up. Um, and so that puts you in that mode, right? That, that starts to enervate you. And so can we build technology that doesn't do that, that privileges patience and connection because of its efficiency and is able to take some of those efficiency gains and channel them into an experience that creates a mood in us of spaciousness and you know equanimity and all of these things and i hope so i really hope so well technology is pretty good at like creating solutions for the problems that it, it created in the first place right that seems to be the kind of like evolutionary way of like technology advancement um but i think it's interesting because when you talk about like space i think we you know, can also talk about like time. These are just such precious things that we have so little of. And, and one of the things that I think a lot about is the, the amount of time that we, we, the collective, spend like commuting, right? Commuting to work. Yeah. Like, I'm sure at it, it, some point in our lifetime, we will look back and think commuting was like a really dumb idea. It was a, it was a terrible use of our time because if you have to like drive in a car or take a train or, or whatever sort of mode of transportation you take to commute to and from work, it is it is it's dead dead time. It's dead space. Sure, you might be able to read a book or listen to a podcast, listen to music, or talk to people on the train. But it's not because you're necessarily choosing to do that, or this is how I want to spend my time. It's because you have to. It's necessitated by the fact that you are going to work. Right. One of the things that we do uh, at Crowdcentric is that we allow people to work remotely on Wednesdays and Fridays. Specifically, like the number one reason for that is so that people don't have to commute to work. Right add up all of the employees and all of the hours saved by not commuting to work. And honestly, we just give them that time back and you can use it for work or you can spend time with your family. It's entirely up to you. But like it's things like that. And like technology doesn't necessarily like um, play a role in coming up with that solution. But what technology has afforded us is the ability to work remotely. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that you say that there's this book and I'm blanking on the name that talks about you know, a couple of things that are really interesting as it pertains to labor, like one of the first concepts, it's a, it's a great sort of like post-capitalist survey. I'll see if I can remember the name. Um, but essentially the point that it makes is that like, first of all, basic labor has no value, um, which is, you know, something that we are all coming to realize and has implications for universal basic income or general value creation. And then there's this class of white collar jobs that are fake jobs that are not real, where they're just like a way for society to remain stable by employing people for like ostensible value exchange when there actually is none. Um, you know, and then there's this, there's this, but there's this point that he makes in the book, which is the last frontier of innovation is the fact that you still have to fly to like Italy to close the deal or like you still have to go be there in some respect like that 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 the fact that being in the flesh still matters um, and still has power is uh, is real and and it has not been solved for and it is the primary gate to increases in both time savings and efficiency now what I would probably what I always found interesting in, in response to that is um, what would we just do with the time that was realized you know and, and I think I think working from home is like a much broader question that I that I have done that I've explored personally and, and have, have have sort of an array of thoughts on. But I think the biggest thing that I that's that I struggle with is you're right. Technology does solve the problems that it creates, um, but it it seems to ignore a certain class of those problems. And specifically, it seems to ignore problems that take care of the person who is using the technology in a way that is not just incremental value add. 
um, that is like explicit in commercial, right? So it's like, oh, you have more time to work, so now you can work more. Or, um, oh, like, you know, here's more information for you to consume so that you can consume more ads um, and that you can you like more people and build our data set, right? Like there's this way in which we still haven't been able to build technology that's like largely good for its own sake and for the space and the creation of emotional room for the user. And I guess I would just like to see that happen, you know? Feels like a perfect way to wrap up. We're out of time. <laughs> Josh, thanks so much. Where can people find more information about you and Simon Data? So we are at, you know, simondata.com. Um, come to our website, um, live the magic, uh, share in the dream, and shoot me an email, josh at simondata.com. And uh, you know, keep listening to, to Leads to Scale. It's my favorite podcast. Uh, you know, and I'm honored to, to have joined you here for this episode. Well, we're honored to have you, Josh. Thanks again. This has been Leads to Scale, brought to you by Social Media Week. For more information on how to get involved with future events, visit socialmediaweek.org. If you have a moment, please rate, review, and subscribe to Leads to Scale wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.